Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special edition of Employment Matters, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Pete Waltz. Throughout this special series of Employment Matters, we've addressed specific issues affecting businesses and organizations globally that have been impacted by the ongoing spread of the virus. And in addition to touching base on important stories and events happening all around the world, we're always fortunate to have the chance to dial in our local ELA lawyers that are practicing on the ground in these jurisdictions and are working daily to help their local clients move through these difficult times. Well, here in the US, as well as in many other countries around the world, we're cautiously moving through various phases of getting back to work and trying to reopen business in some sense of normalcy with particularly, in fact, how we socialize with our colleagues, friends, and family. And this activity in particular, which has been dramatically impacted by the pandemic, has impacted one industry most of all, and that's the business in the restaurant, hospitality, food industries, essentially any social locations where people gather together that serve food, alcohol, and basically cater to larger groups. It's a topic that everybody's talking about, mainly what's going to happen to family night out or evenings with friends at a bar or restaurant, and, and how are these businesses coping? Joining us today on the program is Richard Blau. Richard's a lawyer with Gray Robinson in Tampa, Florida. And Gray Robinson is our ELA member in Northern and Central Florida. Richard is the chair of Gray Robinson's Alcohol, Beverage, and Food Department and presides over the firm's nationwide alcohol law group. Richard's joining us from his office in Tampa, Florida. Richard, welcome to the program. Thank you, Pete. Happy to be with you today. So as I was preparing for this, I didn't really know there was an alcohol law group, let alone a food law. And I know you also are in charge of the Cannabis Law Group, which is certainly another topic we'll talk about. But just give me a sense of what your practice encompasses so our listeners get a sense of what you cover. Sure. The common theme between the three areas that you just described, alcohol, food, cannabis, is that they're all heavily regulated. Cannabis is actually an emerging industry because of the incredibly quickly changing laws regarding marijuana and cannabis. Probably something we can hold for a future webinar podcast. But alcohol, to me, has always been the most fascinating. It's got a storied history. This country's relationship with alcohol goes back centuries before the United States even was a country, when we were colonies. And it truly is one of the most heavily regulated industries to be found, because it's not only regulated by the federal government, but by every single state government, and in some states, even by local governments. Let's take a recap here. We've all watched the news and we've seen crowded bars and restaurants. I went out the other night with a friend for a beer and realized, you know, you can't eat in Pennsylvania unless you have food with it. So there's just lots of changes, as you mentioned. But just give us a rundown, if you can, on where we stand currently. Sure. The fact of the matter, Pete, is that America is in a serious condition right now. The U.S. economy overall has declined by over 32 percent in the second quarter. This is suggesting to me, at least, and I think most professionals, that our country is going to be facing, at best, a rather prolonged, drawn-out recovery. The most startling statistics are, I think, the ones that come straight out of the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control. 4.7 million cases in the United States today, and that's almost 50,000 cases since yesterday. 155,204 deaths so far during this pandemic, 733 since yesterday. And look, what you see in the news now is that while some states, through careful planning and appropriate responses, 
were able to press down or flatten the curve on the pandemic. A lot of states opened up early and now they're having to retrench back. States like Texas, Florida, California, they're all suffering. My state of Florida is particularly hard hit by a resurgence, if you want to think of it that way, of this COVID epidemic. And all of those statistics really paint a pretty dismal picture for the industry that you talked about, the on-premise trade, the restaurants, the bars, the nightclubs, the places that people go to socialize, to interact with one another. Since this pandemic started in February, over 26,000 restaurants across America have closed. More than half of them, I think, have closed permanently. We don't expect to see them come back. Five months into the pandemic, losses have been catastrophic for this industry. Consumer spending is down. Jobs are being lost by the hundreds of thousands. It's, it's a pretty tremendous hit. Tell me a little bit about the specific industries, like the beer industry. Has that, I mean, again, I'm thinking of beer and wine and those kind of aspects. Give us a sense of the impact of those two segments of the market. Sure. Certainly, the beer industry is really suffering because a lot of their sweet spot revenue comes from on-premise retailers. You know, the manufacturers like Anheuser-Busch, Miller Coors, Heineken, as well as craft breweries in your own community, they tend to want to sell to their distributors so that those distributors will sell to all the restaurants that you and I used to go to regularly. And now they can't do that because those restaurants are either closed or severely restricted. A classic, great example is keg beer. Because keg beer is something you really wouldn't buy for your home use. It's something that your restaurant, your club, your bar, they buy kegs of beer. And within the whole entire beer industry of the United States, keg beer was about 8% of total revenues for the producers, the brewers, the manufacturers prior to the pandemic. Now, you know what it is now, Pete? Zero. Nobody's buying any kegs because they can't really sell draft beer right now because bars are closed. Restaurants are either closed or really restricted. But then let's talk about the other side of that. So if you can't buy keg beer, you're going to buy canned beer. And that's typically something I wouldn't even think twice about. But from the research you did, there's been some unexpected consequences around even providing cans to put your beer in. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's right, Pete. Nobody would have forecasted this. It really was an unexpected consequence. So many manufacturers, like the large brewers, were already using cans as well as bottles. Many craft brewers decided that they like cans because from a purity perspective, it keeps out light, it protects the contents of the product much better. It may not be as traditional, but craft brewers really are into the quality of their product. And so cans are a big part of the brewing industry. But because of the pandemic, the distribution chain for aluminum, which is the primary component of metal canning in the beer industry, has been broken. Whether it's people who are in the manufacturing sector for aluminum or those that distribute processed aluminum down to the companies that need it for making cans, They've all been hit by COVID-19, so the distribution chain has been broken. It's really amazing. I mean, every industry has had some impact, but let's just kind of dig in. We all know that travel is down. We know people aren't staying in hotels. We, we obviously are talking about restaurants now and, and any kind of social area, but what are the industries in your, in your research are the most hurt based on what's been going on? 
Well, let me give you some very specific examples for your audience. The hospitality industry, one of the hardest hit in America. Since mid-February, U.S. hotel properties have lost more than 40 billion, that's billion with a B, billion dollars in room revenues. There have been more than 7.7 .7 million hospitality and leisure jobs that have been lost just in the month of April, and we're now into early August. Those numbers have escalated significantly. More than 8,000 hotels are expected to close between now and September unless the federal government gets its act together in terms of a new stimulus program to keep those businesses open. And, and business travel, as you pointed out earlier, it's, it's down so much that for a lot of these hotels, they couldn't fill the rooms if they opened them for free. Another industry, one that's made a lot of headlines is the meat industry. In April, uh, there were 115 meat processing and packing facilities with coronavirus cases across 23 states and almost 5,000 workers diagnosed positive. That's what caused a lot of the big headlines that were in the news and a lot of the meat shortages that existed in grocery stores and supermarkets around the country. That was in April. By May, the number of meatpacking plant workers who were infected had grown from almost 5,000 to over 10,000 and 170 plants were testing positive. By July 10th, the CDC reported 239 facilities infected and over 16,000 meatpacking employees infected and 86 deaths. So the meatpacking industry is still in a world of pain. As we talked about the on-premise retailers, the ones that you and I are most familiar with because we go there to eat, to drink, to meet friends, 26,000 restaurants have been shut down because of coronavirus. And as I said before, you know, over half of those, 16,000 it turns out, are likely shuttered forever and not coming back. Big states like California, New York, Texas, they're the hardest hit. Theme parks, as you can imagine, are suffering from this. Disney has dared to open in Florida, but I'm not so sure that's going well. And many theme parks are closed for the duration, either by choice or by executive emergency order in the states where they operate. Bars and nightclubs, they're really being hit hard because in many states, the government has, has basically made a compromise and said, we'll let restaurants open, but you have to be at a reduced capacity. Bars and nightclubs, for some reason, alcohol is deemed to be such a catalyst for irresponsible behavior that they've been ordered to be shut entirely in many states, including Texas and Florida. Let's run down quickly for our listeners some of the states that have had that shutdown in place. Sure. Hold on to your hat because it's a lot of them. If you take into account emergency orders that have restricted or even entirely prohibited on-premise activity, you're talking about Texas, Florida, Colorado, Arizona, California, Michigan, Massachusetts, Connecticut, North Carolina, Louisiana, New Mexico, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Wyoming, Arkansas, Mississippi, Alabama, South Carolina, Delaware, Indiana, New Jersey, Connecticut, Nevada. My goodness, I feel like I'm back in elementary school having to recite all the states. But every one of those states has implemented some emergency COVID-19 order that has restricted the hospitality industry. And do you think, Richard, that a lot of this happened because they opened too early and they're on the rebound? So for example, I just took a drive across country. I stopped in beautiful West Virginia who has had very low incidence of cases, and I notice they're not on your list. So somehow they must have, and again, it's a much more remote state from some of these others, but how much of this do you think is impacted by the fact that they came back too fast 
And as a result of that, that resurgence is now, has now re-implemented this. In certain states like California, Texas, Florida, Pete, you're absolutely right. The evidence, the, the objective data make clear that reopening early was the direct consequence of the increase in COVID-19 contagion. But in some states, you know, the populations are so sparsely spread out that they don't suffer the same level of contagion. Unfortunately, I think a factor in all this as well is that the science has been pushed aside in favor of a sort of politicization of this whole issue. And politics have played a role in some states, including my own state of Florida, that by the data and by the science should be doing things a lot differently than the way our current governor is running the preventive programs for COVID-19. Let's talk about it again. Now we're going to move from what is to what, what is the coping mechanisms or what's the new normal in this industry. So how are industries like hospitality and restaurant, how are they changing the way they're doing business? Yeah, you know, for on-premise retailers, there are a couple of things that are going on. So bars and restaurants, uh, they've introduced a variety of new safety and hygiene measures. There's a lot of, you know, pre-opening cleaning, post-closing cleaning, servers have masks. Some of them have implemented mandatory reservation systems so they can implement social distancing and make sure they never have too many people on the premises. Another key factor is to try and move your operations outside if you can. The science seems to indicate that the virus spreads less easily outside than in a controlled environment with circulating air and recirculating air. So to the extent that, that a bar, a nightclub, or a restaurant that is able to be open can house some of their customers outside, that's a measure that a lot of them are taking. And another factor is something that's really unique from an alcohol point of view, but really important to that industry. This whole notion that some of your listeners may be aware of cocktails to go. Generally speaking, every state regulates alcohol retailers in terms of whether you're on-premise or off-premise. If you're on-premise, it's meant that the alcohol is to be consumed there, a restaurant, a bar, a nightclub. If it's off-premise, you're buying it, but then taking it somewhere else to consume. A supermarket, a grocery store, a convenience store, a liquor store. The on-premise people are not supposed to sell alcohol off-premise. They're not supposed to sell alcohol to go. But if they're closed or if they can only be open on a limited basis, a lot of your listeners may know alcohol really often subsidizes the food side of a restaurant's business. Right. And if you can't sell alcohol, you probably aren't making money and you may not be able to survive. So in some states, the government has allowed an on-premise retailer to effectively exercise off-premise privileges by selling their customers cocktails to go. They'll make these cocktails on the premise, seal them in a package of some kind, a bottle or a container, and then they will sell them to their customers to take away and consume elsewhere. It's a, it's a divergence in the law that makes a lot of sense in an exigent situation like we're facing with this pandemic, and it makes a difference to the industry. A lot of bars that are closed it's not just an issue for customers that want to go to a bar and can't. The bartenders, the staff, all the people that work at those bars are in a world of hurt. And Cocktails to Go was perceived as a way to help them out. It's interesting. I think the next iteration of that will be how many of those cocktails are being consumed in the parking lot of the restaurant, and then the consumers are driving somewhere else. So we've now created 
in some cases, an open container problem or some other issue that, that will have to be dealt with? Well, you can be sure, Pete, that every one of those exceptions that granted off-premise privileges to a retailer is conditioned on the cocktail being served and, and sold in a sealed package. And once that's done, every state's law with regard to, as you said, open container or sealed container laws, that's going to apply. So let's talk about the biggest challenges. What are the greatest challenges in fighting a continuation or let's call it a reemergent of the virus? What are you seeing as kind of the top couple things that people really need to understand? Yeah, I think from my vantage, there are two points that cannot be underemphasized. Number one is we really need leadership from our elected officials. And number two is we need better compliance when we do have reasonable and responsible directives, whether they're from the federal government, state officials, or even local representatives. But we need to figure out what needs to be done to get people to actually abide by those. So let's get into some specific examples. I mean, point out some of the things that you've seen in some, I know your practice, you're located in Florida, but your practice is national. So let's just point out in some states what you've seen as good examples of challenges here. Yeah, so on a global basis, on a macro basis, the leadership component is that we really need the government to step up and take a more proactive and and affirmative approach to dealing with this pandemic. I'll give you an example in the meat industry. A lot of the problems associated with COVID-19 contagion were that you've got these processing plants with their assembly lines and you've got workers crammed in together working at breakneck speed to process this, and people are getting sick and nothing's being done about it. The Centers for Disease Control came out with recommendations about how to fix that, but they weren't anything but recommendations. Meat industry companies were not required to implement those things, and many didn't. Stronger leadership, in my way of thinking, means not just to recommend, but to require the kinds of responsible safety measures that are going to reduce the risk of contagion. And, and that goes for protecting workers, whether they're meat packing workers in a plant or migrant and temporary farm workers that harvest the fruits and vegetables that we all consume. They need to be protected in terms of access to health care, personal protection equipment, safe working and housing conditions. It's really important that government step up and take a more active role on that. With regard to the compliance side, yeah, I can give you some great examples on, on how the government really needs to do a better job in terms of educating and emphasizing the need for compliance and then taking enforcement action when people don't comply. Because my goodness, I imagine every one of your listeners knows of a popular bar or area, restaurant or otherwise, in their community that's packed every night, even though you scratch your head wondering what are these people thinking? And I've got you know specific examples just from the work that, that I do that demonstrate the truth of this. In Louisiana, that's a state that, you know when it, contagion first started to spread, they were doing a really good job of trying to keep it down. But now it's got one of the highest per capita infection rates in the country. Why is that? Well, recent report, showed that nearly 700 restaurants, bars, and businesses in Louisiana were found to be in violation of the governor's coronavirus restrictions in July. So it's not like I'm talking about old news or maybe this just happened in March. This is now. And these are data from the state fire marshal's office. So it's, it's not, you know, just an incorrect fake news kind of report. 
this is what's going on. People are ignoring the governor's order not to run these businesses this way. They're not implementing social distancing. They're not limiting capacity. They're not spacing tables the way the law says that they have to. Texas is another one. Hundreds of bar owners in Texas this past month in July actually got together and said they were going to defy the governor's order to close. And instead they engaged in something called Freedom Fest where they kept their businesses open and ran them without restriction. It's really kind of no wonder that, you know, one day in, on July 24th, to be specific, Texas reported 8,700 new coronaviruses just in that one day and 196 deaths. And I guess Colorado's another one, right? That's also- Yeah, you know, in, in Colorado, uh, tavern owners are so upset about these restrictions that not only do they protest like in Texas, they actually hire lawyers and file suit litigation in Colorado challenging the order and arguing that that they shouldn't have to close their bars or their taverns and that it's just unfair that restaurants should be open but bars shouldn't. And I also, not proud of it, but also add that here in Florida, there are a number of lawsuits that have been filed on the same notion because even though the governor has allowed many things to remain open, hasn't required masks or anything like that, he did issue an executive order closing all bars and facilities that serve alcohol exclusively are more than 50%. And those businesses are now filing lawsuits challenging that order. So there really, there's a need for leadership and I think there's a need for compliance because the science doesn't, doesn't follow politics. The, the disease certainly doesn't. So we need that kind of leadership. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, you know, this has been very insightful. And I guess the, the big, you know, million dollar question is, when will it get back to normal? And again, I, I've asked this question on many of my podcasts from all around the world. What's the prognosis? What does it look like? But in your thoughts, Richards, what's the timeline for recovery to kind of what we're going to call a pre-pandemic normal? Or does there even exist a pre-pandemic normal anymore? What are your thoughts yeah. on Pete, I think that that really is an excellent question that I don't think anyone yet knows the answer. And I'll tell you why. If I had a crystal ball that could predict when we'd get back to normal or anything close to normal, I'd be buying a lot of lottery tickets because the data just aren't there in my opinion. And let me explain why. I will say that there have been some economic forecasts and I've seen media outlet reports that suggest anywhere from three to four years before the American economy is back on its feet the way it was prior to February 2020. But here are my concerns. How do you really calculate that unless you fill in the gaps and quantify the variables? What are the variables? Well, is there gonna be a vaccine? We all think so. News seems to be positive, but it isn't here yet, and there's no timetable as to when it's coming. When it arrives, is that vaccine gonna work? And if it does work, how long will it take to immunize the public? We've got 350 million people to deal with. That's a lot. Is there going to be a resurgence of the illness? And I'm not even talking now about the increase in COVID-19 cases because states in certain circumstances have opened prematurely. I'm talking about when winter comes in 2020, 2021. Is that going to bring a new wave of COVID-19 infections? Or will it even bring a new mutation of the COVID-19 virus so that we are back to square one. I think those variables all have an impact on the timeline. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. If I, if I recall, I think the flu comes around pretty much every year and I get a flu shot. Some people don't. Some people get the flu, some don't. Is, is COVID-19 the next 
annual flu that people get. And if that's the case, this is a pretty serious initiative to have. I think, I think physicians, scientists would say, yes, that's the case, that we have to be prepared for that. And absolutely, yes, this is a very serious situation. So aside from the disease-related variables, what can you tell us about the hospitality, food, and restaurant industry? How quickly will that recover? Given well, all that? as you pointed out, when you talked about whether there is a normal anymore, or we're going to have to shift into some new version of normal, I think, I think the food and alcohol industries both are recognizing that they can't go back to doing business the old-fashioned way. Those days are probably gone. And so they have to figure out what's the new business model. I think certainly for alcohol, and I think maybe even to some extent for food as well, a shift into e-commerce and direct delivery models, as opposed to the more traditional marketing and, and distribution models will probably be in the offing. You know, governments that have regulated these industries, food and especially alcohol, in very set ways are probably going to have to get more flexible and be open to more creative solutions. The cocktails to go example that we talked about earlier, you know, it may be that on and off premise retailers have to have the same privileges in order to survive. And then how easy will it be for consumers to sort of readjust their thinking in terms of dealing with brick and mortar traditional retail outlets versus uh, more online purchasing and more direct delivery? I'll tell you, Richard, there's so many unanswered questions. And again, those questions being asked all over, but this one hits close to home for all of our listeners. You know, Friday night's coming. Where are we going to go? Well, we're not going to go anywhere than we weren't Thursday night or Wednesday night or Tuesday night. But again, it's such a, especially in, you know, obviously we, we live in the U.S., but this is a global issue. Those same restaurant challenges that we're having, they're having all around the world. And I really appreciate your candor and your insight into this. I know our listening audience did. So thanks for joining us. Hopefully you can stay safe and enjoy the time you have on your own there. But again, thank you for your insight and for helping us understand this important topic. Absolutely, Pete. You know, I'm an optimist and I believe that America has the ability to figure out creative solutions to the situation we're in, to implement those solutions and ultimately come out the better for it. And I think lawyers have a lot to do with that because these industries especially are so heavily regulated, lawyers can make a difference in finding those solutions. But we'll, we'll certainly have to work hard to make that happen. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it and really enjoyed our discussion. Thanks, Richard. For our listening audience, if you'd like to connect with Richard Blau from Gray Robinson in Tampa, Florida, or any of our lawyers around the world, please reach out to them on the ELA website at ela.law. You'll find a big widget in the center of the page. There you can also sign up to receive invitations to our upcoming webinars, download white papers, get access to on-demand content from the online library, or access the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Pete Waltz. Thanks for listening.